So to continue on, <clears throat> we were looking at the structure of the language used in this discourse. And there are, uh, it begins with knowing a lustful mind when a lustful mind is present, uh, knowing a mind without lust when a mind without lust is present, knowing when there is anger and knowing when there is not anger, uh, knowing when a mind is deluded and a mind without delusion. Just add two more, knowing a mind that is contracted while it's contracted, and knowing a mind that is distracted while it's distracted. Contracted and distracted, <clears throat> um, there's other languages that get used in other translations. One, instead of contracted, it says shrunken. And it, it seems to refer to a mind that's um, not able to meet experience because it's, uh, it's sort of collapsed within, because it's tired or it's depressed or it's withdrawn from its um, connection with the world. And so withdrawn and shrunk in or contracted. And the distracted mind is um, one that's restless, one that won't really commit to what it's experiencing and instead darts about. Um, and usually we call that restlessness. So these first categories are knowing when your mind is in uh, um, difficult states knowing when your mind is, and heart are not in difficult states. And as you do that, and you get comfortable with that, you can start to see the gradients in between. As difficulties start coming on, you can catch it earlier, and that's very helpful. If you can catch the fact that you're getting angry and irritated earlier, versus finding out that you're angry, um, but already you're so locked into it, or you're uh, afraid, or you're obsessed with something, Feeling it come on gives you a better window to understand what's happening while it's happening. I'm getting attached, I'm getting dug in, I'm getting lost here. You can redirect more easily if you want to intervene. Um, then if it comes on and your mind gets very caught. But again, before we start intervening, we're just learning to watch the mind in motion. Learning to let it, give it some room to play out. And then <clears throat> you get to see the underlying conditions of its impermanence. You get to see that these are just visiting states. Every state that we have is a visiting state. There's that uh, beautiful poem by Rumi. I think it's on the back side of this sheet. It says, well, the guest house. I'll read it if you just want to listen or if you want to read along. <clears throat> This being human is a guest house, every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. And that was written by Rumi and translated by Coleman Barks. 
from a different culture and a different time, but a more universal wisdom. If you're paying attention to other things, your mind, your uh, mental state will keep changing and it will define your world for you and it puts you in a, um, a passive state where you have to, if anger comes upon you, then suddenly you're having to work within an angry mind and then anger passes and then you get to be relieved. But if you spend time uh, taking interest in the flavors of your heart and mind as they're arising, one, you can catch them sooner, and two, you can actually begin to change the equation where you can take interest in it. You can um, meet it early on. And so if there's a lot of anger coming up, <clears throat> you can actually stabilize yourself enough to say, there's a lot of anger here. There's a lot of anger here. And it's telling me this, and it's telling me that, and it's taken my world and distorted it, and it's made this so prominent, completely... Uh, eclipsing this other thing. So you meet somebody, they're a good person, you get to know them, and then they do something that annoys you, and then annoyance gets strong, and then suddenly you can't remember they were ever a good person. They only seem like somebody who was sent to um, drive you crazy. If anger takes you over, it gets to define you. It gets to momentarily take over your worldview. And it's heavily distorted, though it feels clear. You think, I see things totally clear, and that person is doing something that has to stop and it's uh, rooted in their ignorance and it's rooted in their cruelty and I'm the one who has to set them straight. So you can be taken over by anger and then when it passes, you'll have more insight like, wow, I really got triggered there or I was really upset. Better that you know it while it's happening than always having to clean up uh, after the fact. So um, lean into this, enjoy it. Um, you're going to steer better by um, stepping into it versus always playing catch-up uh, with your heart and your mind. You probably have all seen little kids <clears throat> who right before bedtime um, are playing and someone, you can see they're getting tired and they're getting more frustrated with whatever they're playing with. It's usually about, a sign, about the sign that you will take them up and um, they'll go to bed, but they'll they'll swear to God they're not tired. And you can see it, even while they're rubbing their eyes, like, I'm not tired, I'm not getting upset, and they're getting so upset, it's like, yeah. They don't have an awareness at that time that they're getting tired. To them, it's, it feels unjust that you'd even uh, suggest that they're tired. And yet, as, a, as an adult with some perception, you can see, like, well, it's actually time to go to bed, and then you actually get them to bed, and bam, they're out. <clears throat> So we don't always know what's going on for us. We don't, but and sometimes others can see what's happening for us uh, better than we can. But far better that we actually know what's going on in our heart and mind while it's happening uh, than not. So that's some of the, uh, the immediate usefulness of knowing your patterns. When my mind really makes me right and really makes you wrong, you know, big flags should be waving in front of my eyes like... <laughs> You should question this because every time you have felt this right and that person that wrong, you've always realized it was delusion. Yet not this time. <laughs> this time I'm looking around and all I see is I'm right and they're wrong. Like I did my work. 
<laughs> I'm clear, they're at fault. And it's like, one more time, I fell for it. One more time, that uh, distorted mind came over, promised itself was clearer. I followed along by the script and uh, regretted it. So knowing your mind from within it and knowing what it's like in it, so you can actually um, learn from it yourself. And then you don't have to spend so much time doing cleanup afterwards. And we talked to, <clears throat> just briefly about um, starting to uh, not intervene and create room for different emotions, different mental states to uh, arrive, do what they do, and pass on. And something else will arrive and do what it does and pass on. And so these things will come and change. One of the things that we're uneasy about is that it's very hard to concretely define yourself and therefore predict who you are to yourself when you realize how fluid it all is and how unpredictable, that I actually don't know five minutes from now how I'm going to show up for you all. And that's nerve-wracking because you're all looking at me. <laughs> so I have to have faith that somehow five minutes from now, whatever is arising, not that it's guaranteed to be appropriate, but I'll, I'll meet it as it's arising versus trying to control it and craft it, own it and deny it um, to try to manage myself that way versus being so familiar with myself that no matter how I show up, I'm oriented within that. I know that. I know when I do that. I know how to sit in front of people when I'm tired. I know how to sit in front of people when I'm inspired. I know how to sit in front of people in many aspects of myself for familiarity. And you know people who uh, are comfortable with themselves in the sense of ease that they give off, that no matter how the world turns, they can be conscious in those twists and turns and not need to control things in order to be happy or content. That there's, there's wisdom that has gone to many aspects of your own heart and mind. So that's some framing of why <clears throat> we don't rush in to intervene and why we're um, expanding our capacity to go into uh, states of mind that we normally would want to change because they're unpleasant or unskillful but we're going to give them a little more time to play itself out so we can learn a little bit more about that. So our only strategy isn't get out, but I can't seem to get out of this anger, but I can work within it. I'm not so confused by it. So I'm trying to get out of it, but while I'm in it, um, I'm still oriented because I've actually spent time being conscious in my own anger. And I can then trace it down to what's causing the anger. And it's not you, it's my attachment inside to my preferences. I've already seen that. That was very helpful for me. Um, it's always, any degree I've had that has been helpful. But <clears throat> in any personal relationship, the quicker I can get to not why the outside world is making me angry, that strategy usually has me fight the outside world a lot. And I may or may not win but understanding that there's a sh been a shift in my heart and in my mind, and it usually is from attachment that I get the most frustrated or the most um, craving for certain experiences. And rather than solve that by following through and trying to get what I want or fight the outside world, 
I can unhook from within and then see if I still want to pursue that beautiful experience or if I still need to step away from a difficult experience. First learning how to unhook it. And that's the progression of knowing your mind, knowing how it behaves. You get these <clears throat> hallmark warning signs. Um, you know, new person falling in love and this desire comes up like, this relationship will have no trouble. I've actually met the first person that I will never have an argument with. I have finally arrived. And all the other relationships that started like this didn't turn out that way, but this one's different. Yeah, this one I can tell. So you could be completely deluding yourself. And maybe you have met somebody wonderful, but in that uprush of falling in love with somebody, the mind only sees what's beautiful. It's one of the the beautiful parts of falling in love is there's it it has you kind of buy into something and you can do that wisely or you can do that with some delusion but doing that over and over and over helps you navigate uh, these beautiful expressions of heart and mind and not get lost in them Let's see if there are any questions from the earlier part of the day or your own reflections. It doesn't seem to be on. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes the batteries get weak. How do you discern when your anger is actually supporting you and when it's distorting? And that, that's, a, that's a, a whole beautiful exploration, even just on anger. Um, by the time my mind is generating uh, no value on the other person or the suggestions that it's throwing up actually harms the other person, disregards the other person, so easily dismisses their point of view, um, is so sure of my point of view, um, I now know <clears throat> that, there's, that there's a distortion. And I don't, it can be hard to know like what level is there a distortion, um, but I'm going to check into it because um, I feel justified in yelling at them. I feel justified in using aggressive force. I feel justified. And that may actually be necessary in some strange way. Like there could be somebody who's about to hurt somebody because they're really lost. And I might yell at them, see if I can stop it, or I might physically step in. <clears throat> but if that person no longer has value to me, if that person deserves harm, I've gotten angry with them. 
and I've lost sight of them. So this is a very powerful force to learn to tame, and I'm not expecting that we can kind of do a weekend workshop and, and have it clearly in check. But what I did earlier on is take things like anger and, and say they're only destructive and therefore we can't have them. And found that there was something about the upwelling of this, the surge of capacity that didn't mind conflict, but I had to wake up within it so that it could be uh, a resource not to wilt in the face of a conflict, but not to attack either, but to use this bubbling up of energy and hold it with wisdom and compassion and let it be part of the energy that was allowing me to, to survive in intensity because the actual key was not by running away or acquiescing too quickly, but staying in the heat of it and staying conscious in there and then finding what the actual problem was. And so you and I might be fighting, fighting, fighting or trying our best to see it clearly. And then by in that moment we can say, oh, I think I see what the, what the problem is. But if I acquiesce too quickly or avoid conflict or come in with all guns blazing, we'll never have a chance to actually find out what the underlying thing is. So the, the, and that takes a comfort to learn to be conscious within something like anger when it's arising. Um, that's, that's the, there's a possibility there. And I've seen all emotions, all mental states have some type of possibility within them, but I'm not conscious enough to, to, to understand what that is. So that also can grow um, out of here. There's, um, there's a little demonstration I want to give you. Um, it goes back to my days when I was studying physics, and the demonstration was so key to understanding. So you're going to get a visual demonstration. <laughs> and this comes from what happened in my swimming pool over a year ago. So <clears throat> the mind can be like this jar, although minds can get very vast, unlike this jar. But there's clean water inside, and you can see all the colorful stones and rocks down at the bottom. I might get a little wet doing this, but as I turn this jar, things can move about, and it's a very dynamic system. But for the most part, the water stays fairly clear, and it settles out again. And all the activity happens, and everything settles out, and the mind is clear. As I turn this, most of your attention will be drawn to the rocks because they're more colorful. So we, wanna, we tend not to watch the water because it's clear. So we're look, looking into the system. As it gets very dynamic, we look at the rocks, the rocks settle, and then the water becomes kind of clear again. This is a mind that's sort of meditating and peaceful, clear. And then you can take the same mind into complicated situations and really agitate it. And the water doesn't become murky. It's just a very dynamic system, a lot of stuff passing through it. Then you take this and put it aside. The complications uh, settle down to the bottom and the water becomes um, stable and clear again. This is a heart and mind that's um, unobstructed. So you sit in meditation, it sits there peacefully. You get up and you deal with the world and the complexities of the world and there's a lot of activity. And then you can settle down, the mind settles down very quickly again. This is the citta, this is the heart-mind without a lot of complication, without a lot of confusion in it.
This one looks like that because it's been sitting for a while. So unagitated, this uh, chitta, this heart-mind, fairly clear water, only because it's been resting. So this might be you after uh, going to a cabin and eating really good food for a week and resting as much as you need to. Then you go back to work (coughs) (laughs) and you start getting agitated by daily life. And all the all of the stuff that was underneath that bubbles up again. And now, even though you put it and sit it in meditation, the, the thick stuff goes down quickly, but there's this sort of fatigue and confusion that lingers in the heart-mind. And so now we can put this next to this one here, and you'll see <coughs> this one never got cloudy. It just got busy. And the busyness settled and went back to peace you know, um, in clarity. This one, the heavy stuff settled. But there's this uh, lingering confusion, distraction, fatigue, keeping the water a little muddy. But again, if we let this one rest, uh, the water will clarify. The work of mindfulness of mind, again, when you study these things, you can stay oriented even while there's a lot of activity. And it tends not to kick up as much um, complication. The ability to be conscious while busy, and then letting things settle again. As our hearts and mind become free, we're more free, we're more like this first jar than the second one. So, how'd that land for people? Yeah, okay, maybe. (laughs) Um, Then what happens if if you have a a mind that's, let's say that the the mud in this jar is an underlying yearning that things be permanent. Things are permanent, therefore we can find uh, rest in the fact that, oh, you know, this body, this building, um, I finally found a thing, a way to be in the world where um, I get to relax into the security I've developed by how I've arranged myself. And that's good until the world shakes you and then all the things that were kind of um, put aside for the moment because you thought you had temporary security, get dug up again. And it takes a while for that to settle. It takes a while for you to find uh, new ease. If we cleaned the mud out of this jar, which is the hope that there are permanent things in the world, then you could have all the peace and all the activity of uh, your life, but it wouldn't get so cloudy. So it's the underlying urge that things be permanent that caused this jar to get cloudy and this jar over here doesn't have that, so it stays clear. This is looking at this um, knowing a mind with delusion and knowing a mind without delusion. A mind that still has underlying delusion in certain circumstances will get, um, will get cloudy. It will be confusing. You'll be you know, restless and in fatigue. And, um, and that's what we're trying to actually draw out. We're trying to draw that, clean up the, um, uh, the mud in the jar, clean up our belief systems, clean up our orientation, so that we can have a, live a very dynamic life and not uh, have the mind get so choppy, so cloudy, so confused. Do people follow that? Yeah? So that's, <clears throat> I'm saying that because we're about to go deeper into this, um, this sutta, this discourse. 
There's a second stage that happens. When the mind gets this cloudy and there's mud in it, <clears throat> new life forms can move into it. <laughs> and you get this jar. That, that actually happened to my swimming pool. Um, last year in December, we had three uh, rainstorms in a row and it overflowed this creek and the creek flew in, um, flowed into our swimming pool and took out our filtering system. And it was cloudy for a couple, for a week. I'm like, wow, it's really cloudy. And then it turned green. <laughs> As it turned green, the forest moved in because they, they looked more like a pond. And then it got very complicated to clean because it wasn't just muddy now, but there were these frogs had come in, they'd laid their eggs, and we didn't want to hurt the frogs and their eggs, and the salamanders came in, and there's no way the filters could even begin to deal with the algae because it was so much thicker than just having silt. And so this is all the the self-drama, the me-drama that comes in. Because as my mind gets cloudy and I'm looking to give myself more reassurance, I can either go the wise way, which is just relaxing the mind, cleaning up its underlying beliefs that things are permanent, relaxing the things that are not permanent, my mind clears up. But if as I get turned around, spun around, I begin to... Um, Look for security by taking birth in myself. I want this. I need this. And I add a lot of me drama to what's happening. Not only is it more cloudy, but when you begin to shake it, it's, it's dark and cloudy in there. This is where our really bad days come from. <laughs> this is where a lot of the deep self-drama that gets added on. It's a second add-on to just underlying confusion. And this one, you just have a simple belief that things should be permanent, a hope that things should be permanent. That's a belief. This is all the ways temple complicates himself when there's this underlying belief or hope for permanence. It, new life forms move in there, and then it's a whole other complication to have the mind settle. This settles much more slowly than this one because I believe in the drama. I believe in the complications my mind has made on top of a misunderstanding. The world is actually made of impermanent things, but <clears throat> I get away with hoping things are permanent. My car is older than it was this morning. There's probably a new scratch on it, but if I don't look too closely, it's the same car I drove here. So I get to kind of be sloppy and say, my car isn't changing. This body looked like it did yesterday, so it's not changing. That hope that things that I like are not changing then I start to build an identity around that. And then when the world shakes me up, so much stuff comes out of my mind, so much fear, so much anger, so much obsession. All these uh, self-dramas rise up um, as a secondary complication to holding this underlying belief that things will be permanent. And so I can leave these three jars here. And you can see this one is just a little touch, touch gray, and it will settle. This one's going to be green for a while. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> I'm not sure if that um, if it is instructive for you, but uh, I was reflecting upon it, and um, it helped me put to imagery and put to words why we want to work with the mind. Because the mind that's unhindered, the mind that isn't confused, um, is an incredible ally. It can do beautiful, beautiful things, and it doesn't trip up. We don't have to recede to a monastery 
and find peace in very special circumstances. We can do meditative work and we can help develop our hearts and minds in those situations. We want to be able to be free everywhere. That's what this first jar represents. You can shake that jar all day long and it doesn't get cloudy. It's just the conditions of being very active. And as soon as you settle it down, things settle down quite quickly. The second jar, what's in there is misunderstandings. Just a, a not quite the, the right paradigm for how the world actually works. The third jar is when we've actually built a sense of ourself, a sense of the world that we're attached to out of that misunderstanding in the second jar. It's much, it gets much more complicated, much more cloudy. This is what watching the mind can show you. You can see yourself in a lot of drama. You learn to allow your mind to be in drama so you can understand it. Watch yourself be in anger, be in grief. Know that uh, quite naturally you are in grief because you grew attached. And that attachment made sense at the time. You know, of course we're going to get attached to our, our loved ones. That seems very natural. But <clears throat> attaching to them and hoping that things will become permanent because you enjoy it is a setup. So how can I love and be loyal and connected and still allow things to be impermanent? That's what we're growing so that we can actually have a free heart and mind. Anyways, the capacity for that grows out of our willingness to show up and watch our heart and mind play out uh, patterns that have developed already. And just by watching them, you begin to filter out the complexities that um, operate when we don't see things, when we don't see things as they actually are. They tend to propagate. And by coming in and seeing anger for what it is, or sadness for what it is, or grief for what it is, we can see within all those states, there's some type of um, uh, self-view. That's a strategy to manage our sense of security or happiness. If that's been born out of a clinging or craving, then we're bound to suffer because the world will change. And where we've clung, we'll now feel the strain of that thing changing, even though we're trying to grasp onto it. Also wanted to <clears throat> use this as an example for, this is the content of mind, all these stones at the bottom. This is the sound, or this is the sight, the smell, the taste, body sensations, those are the thoughts. But what they're floating in and passing through is the space of the heart and the mind. It's a little more ephemeral. You know, you know when you're happy. If I ask you, are you happy now? You might be able to say yes, but have you actually taken the time to rest in the field of your own happiness? It's, it's not common. It's not common that people have actually lived many, many decades and they've taken time not to enjoy being in nature, but to enjoy what their heart and mind are like when they're in nature. Not to enjoy the sunset, but enjoy how your heart and mind are responding to the sunset. Can you come in and grieve the passing of a loved one? And while that's happening, also be in and understand and be familiar with the heart and mind that are grieving the passing of a loved one. This is the invitation in what we're developing 
in the third foundation of mindfulness is not so much the content of our experience, but the field within. The field within, um, what it's like to go through all these emotions and mental states as experiences unto themselves and not so much on the content of experience. So I'm just underscoring that, again, that the field of the heart and mind is what we're looking at here. Not so much the, um, the tangible parts, maybe more tangible parts of the actual thoughts that are happening or the more um, uh, tangible sound, sight, smell, taste. What is the heart and mind like? That is smelling or tasting or thinking. Are there any questions about that? Yes. Yeah. If I look at my heart and mind properly, I think I will be looking at changes in my body. And and if that's what I that's what I notice, then is this the same as uh, as embodiment? Embodiment <coughs> of of my emotions. Of your emotions, yeah. Okay. To be embodied, often we talk about the physical body, but to be within your sadness and be conscious, to be within your happiness and be conscious of it. That's the embodiment of your emotional field. The embodiment of happiness is not to just be um, ruled by the happiness, but to be awake within it. So the happiness is just as strong as it ever was, but you're awake within it. Every emotion uh, brings about some changes in the body. Yes. Yes. So first, you're aware. First, you can name it. That's one. That's the first. You can start to name the emotion that's present. Then you accept the emotion that's present, and you stop trying to modify it. Then you deepen into intimacy. And for me, that's often like what it, when I'm lowering my body into hot water. I'm. I'm letting, I'm submerging myself in that bath. So I'm, if I'm submerging myself in a state of calm, I'm submerging my mind and my heart in a place of peace. I'm allowing myself to, to relax into um, disappointment or frustration. And those are unpleasant to get into. But if you can recognize that they're happening, they accept, and then allow them the space to be there for as long as you can. I say that if I can be aware of the changes of one emotion, like I am very familiar how sadness affects my body. Yeah. In the past, I have been sad for a long time, but that is in, that's actually past history. Uh, uh, I haven't <coughs> been sad for several decades, but last week sadness came. Just initially, I was aware of that. I looked at it; it went away. Yeah. But I haven't really done anything with anger and other things. And that may be what's on your spiritual progression, what is next. Okay, but you don't want to, like, where's my next thing? You just relax. <laughs> <laughs> and whatever you're meant to awaken upon, it's beautiful, presents itself as the next part of your, the, your lotus flower that will open might be a petal that starts out like anger and then turns into tenderness that cares enough to get angry. But there's a whole progression as the heart opens. As we look at this piece that says the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, there's two columns. This second column <clears throat> that says contemplations, 
I just want to talk about this briefly and then we're going to go into a practice period. On the left side you have the four foundations of body, Vedana, mind, and dhammas. So these are all the places the Buddha wanted us to develop our ability to be patient and present and intimate with these expressions of the body, the Vedana, which is the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral quality. We're working on mind today, and next time we'll talk about the dhammas, uh, the processes that, of how we get caught and how we get free. But each of these places we're developing mindfulness. I said earlier, there's these two words, to abide contemplating. We develop the ability to be intimate, that's the abiding side. And then there's the contemplating, we abide contemplating. So these are the contemplations that are repeated over and over and over in these discourses. Everywhere there's a place to look at mindfulness, this is what the Buddha wanted us to deepen. He wanted you to experience the internal expression of that foundation of mindfulness. So today, the inside, being mindful of, in, of what it's like inside to be happy or calm, fearful, impatient. That's the internal feeling that. The external is you spend time and you, you gaze at other people. And maybe it's the person in front of you, maybe it's walking through a crowd. How do people see you one by one or as a group? And you be mindful of it. You are mindful of it. Um, so I, I could be mindful of you as a community and I might get the individual senses. You know, some people are smiling more than others. Or does the group feel? How does the group feel to me? This is mindfulness placed. I'm looking at the quality of heart and mind, individually and collectively. And that's worth developing so you actually understand the people in front of you and you understand the communities that you're in. How does the group feel? How do individuals feel within a group? This is also a development of mindfulness. So this is one of the contemplations, internally, externally. And at the same time, can you get a sense of my internal world and my external world? What's the, what is being created here, internally and externally? And getting a sense of the collective experience, internally and externally. So this is one of the developments, and we do this at each one of the places of mindfulness. First we find the personal experience of it, then we find the external experience of it, and then we find the universal experience of it. The universal experience of peace, the universal experience of impatience, the universal experience of love, the universal experience of regret. That universal experience does several things. One, it puts us in um, empathetic uh, resonance with our internal world and our, uh, our external world. Spending time being internal, external with your mindfulness, and then finding the resonance where I understand you because I've also been angry. And I, your happiness is my happiness. I see your happiness, I'm lit from within. It's where a, a, a sense of something like oneness comes when we do mindfulness internally and externally and then at the same time. So I'm aware of what it feels like inside and I'm aware of what it feels like outside. Also, <clears throat> this, I call this the, uh, the anti-tabloid mechanism because when I go shopping in a supermarket and I see how white the teeth are of some Hollywood actor and how perfect their life looks, 
week after week and month after month, like every time the camera's on them, they are glorious. My mind will say, someday I wish I were them. Wouldn't it be better if I were them? They look like they're wealthy, look like they're happy, everybody around them is healthy, they travel the world, they're famous. Those all seem like fantastic things. Loving myself, I want that for me too. So this type of craving comes in, this type of yearning. But if you really pay attention mindfully, you can see that sooner or later, they too have to go through difficulties. There's one thing for the mind to be enchanted by the image of somebody else having it better than you do and therefore I wish I were them. When you universalize mindfulness, it undercuts this uh, yearning of the mind to think that there is happiness elsewhere that's better than what you have here. And there, there could be pleasure elsewhere that you're not having here, but deep, deep, deep happiness is found by the ability to meet yourself moment by moment and fantasizing, having lottery fantasies or Hollywood celebrity fantasies or some uh, king and queen somewhere fantasies, whatever your thing is, or the perfect vacation fantasies, to th see a picture of happy people on a cruise boat does not mean that when you finally get there, you'll be happy. <laughs> it was the promise, but when you get there, you're seasick. Or when you get there, you were happy for as long as you were happy, and then you're bored, or whatever happened to you. So when you do internal and external, the way that leads to the mind being liberated is it begins to extrapolate and gets this intuitive sense, not a hard belief you have to hold on to, but the mind lets go of this strategy that my deep happiness and contentment are in some other person, some other lifestyle, some other place, uh, not here. And letting go of that allows you to come into deeper intimacy with who you actually are, the life you're actually living. So that's a very profound contemplation. It's one of the repeated ones to find something mindfully internally, find it externally, and then to begin to universalize it and see that all people are working on these same themes. The second thing we look at is the arising experiences and then they're passing away. So <clears throat> if you're, again, angry, one of the things that anger will tell you is you've always been like this, you'll always be like this. It's just one of the worldviews that comes with a strong emotion is it tends to um, promise that things have always been like this, they'll always be like this. As you fall in love, as you get disappointed, when there's strong grief, when fear comes in, it uh, spins its way forward and backwards in time and tells a, uh, a strong story that's often distorted. So seeing these things as they arise and as they pass, uh, one, it breaks down that story, that um, uh, delusion, that you'll always be happy, you'll always be sad, and it won't define you as much. Um, and it also gives you courage to have that experience because it's temporary. I'm afraid of feeling my anger because I'm worried that it's not temporary. But if I actually get in there and feel it, I can feel how much it's fluctuating because I can see it's rising and passing, it comes in waves. So watching the arising of experience, watching the passing away of experience, watching the arising of some new mental state, you've been very peaceful and then this irritation starts to come in. You're like, oh, I just got there into the peacefulness. <laughs> Do I really, can I just like block it out a little bit? Like watch, the peacefulness, it was peaceful for as long as it could be peaceful. And then this clinging came in 
and that was even part of the agitation. But if you can actually let some new thing arise and some old thing pass away, um, things tend to arise and pass away and cause less trouble. So anger does come and go, and it doesn't leave as much disturbance or restlessness or regret or whatever you're working with. And so do pleasant states. They arise and they pass. You don't have to cling on to them or own them. They arise and pass. A mind that's more willing to have things arise and pass tends to be visited by more pleasant states because there's not as much self-drama that is grown out of the craving and clinging. So you're doing yourself a favor when you can allow happiness to come and go. It's more likely to come and go. And anger uh, doesn't have such a home to one who's not afraid of it. Um, so this is another contemplation to come in as you're getting to know a particular mental state. Right in the mental state, you can see the arising of it. I'm happy now because happiness is arising right now. Oh, I'm, I'm, my happiness is coming down because happiness is fading now. This is how the Buddha wanted us to mature our relationship to the mind, to see that it's fluctuating and in constant motion. And then the reflection deepens and to see what uh, bare attention relaxed into anger is like without a lot of complications added to it. Anger by itself is an energetic and emotional quality. And it probably has a physical attribute where the body heats up a little bit and then it's more energized. And that's what it is. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. We can keep our attention a little more simple in the flow of the direct experience. So these contemplations, when we say we abide contemplating, we first learn to be with a mental state get to know it, and as we're getting to know it, we see its internal nature, its external nature, its universal nature. We begin to see that it arises, it passes, it doesn't stay, it arises and passes. And that begins to uh, liberate us from these underlying, um, not seeing things clearly, which is a, one of the primary causes of our suffering, as well as this habituated craving and clinging that come in. You, can't, you don't crave and cling to things that are fluid. You can't grasp water. It just keeps flowing through. So you stop trying to grasp something fluid. Any questions about that? Yeah. Um, just one thing. I'm thinking this would really work for sleeplessness, too. <laughs> you know, people have insomnia, just mm. let it go. And... Let it flow. <laughs> I just am. I mean, it, it takes. The, it doesn't take the underlying unpleasantness if your body's wishing for sleep and it can't. But you don't have to suffer over it. It just is. I'm not sleeping now. And there's not more drama to that. It's just I'm not sleeping right now. And you can take the suffering down to just the bare experience. My body's a little tired. My neck's a little stiff. My mind wishes it could sleep. But that's all. That's what it is as opposed to a lot more added drama. What I'd like to do is, again, let's practice this. Um, see if we can add into these uh, contemplations. And they're very light, also. Very light. So find yourself into a meditation posture. And do this for about... Uh, 
Yeah, we'll do this for a half hour and then we'll do some walking meditation. Inviting your body into a posture that's comfortable. One where the body can become still and relaxed. And yet still upright so that the body doesn't fall asleep. Relaxation is still supported within. Inviting your mind to become relaxed. Letting go of things that are not here. See if you can become content with what is here. Become content with a beating heart, lungs that breathe, muscles and bone that keep you upright. Having a heart and a mind that experience the world. Inviting yourself into that flow of contentment, keeping it simple. Sometimes after lunch, we can be a little drowsy. And so if that were true, the teachings would be to add a little awareness to the drowsiness. What is it like to be your heart and your mind right now? And maybe you're not drowsy. Maybe something else is happening. I just want to take our awareness and rest it into the field of the heart and the mind. deepen our intimacy with how our heart and our mind are expressing themselves right now.
from within the flow of your experience? Can you gently become intimate with some aspect of your heart or your mind right now? Possibly giving a name to that quality. Can you see that that quality is arising fresh in this moment? And as you watch it over time, does it change over seconds or minutes or hours? If you find you are drowsy after the meal, you might come to standing. It tends to be a way to bring a little more energy into the system. 
So you can explore sleepiness from within sleepiness. If you find there's so little consciousness available, going to standing might be a better way to meet that experience, not to get rid of the sleepiness, but give you a chance to understand it. Can you relax into and allow and investigate these qualities of heart and mind? Can you make room for difficult states? drawing upon a tender courage to wake up from within the state, just to know the state better. Wake up in your sadness, restlessness, Wake up within your beautiful states of calm, faith, compassion. Sometimes putting our hand on our chest or on our heart reinforces the intention that what's happening now is perfect, it's fine. It's as natural as the weather. We're just trying to see what's already occurring, not need things to be different.
if you find that you're adrift, you might commit again to the breath to give you something more tangible to land upon. And if you've been with the breath for a while, you might look at how you've been with the breath or how you are right now with the breath. What qualities are present now? What's new and arising now? Sleepiness or dullness? Relaxation? Clarity? Patience? Kindness? You might notice that your mind is easily adrift, not making any of it a problem, just seeing if we can become conscious of how our mind and heart are expressing themselves right now. Now it's time for a half hour of walking meditation. We'll come back in at 3.30. And I invite you to use uh, some resolve here that you actually practice the walking meditation now and not just wander about. Um, being able to practice here, you're going to be able to bring the practice home with you. And if you just sort of drift about now because that feels a little more comforting, you won't have such a, an attunement to it to bring it home. So I encourage you to actually find a space where you can walk back and forth in those 10 to 20 steps. Practice walking meditation out to your place. Stay there till you hear the bell and come back. Possibly use the bathroom if you need to. But um, have some discipline for your, your practice here and strengthen what you're learning. And keep exploring the endlessly fascinating many combinations of factors of heart and mind, how they play together 
and what you can learn. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.